Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Thank you, Bill, for reading the scripture for us this morning. Uh, I'm honored to be up here today uh, preaching to the congregation. Um, I want to start off with a brief introduction. I know Raleigh kind of hit on a little bit about who I am. Um, But for those of you who may not know me or who might be new this morning, my name is Hunter Fustel, and I've been a member here at the Ridge for about eight years. So right around when I turned 16, I took the membership class, became a member. But I've been here at the Ridge since I was about 12 years old. I've served in the youth program here, teaching from fifth and sixth all the way through uh, 12th grade. I spent most of that time uh, with the high school. And uh, I've also been a member of the worship team here since I was about 14. So most of you probably recognize me from being up here and singing. So for a long time, you've had to put up with my singing voice. And this morning, you have to put up with my speaking voice as well. Either way, I am blessed to have the privilege to share this message with you this morning uh, as we study from the book of Job in the Old Testament. Before we dive into the message, I recognize that we as a church today uh, really haven't studied the book of Job, at least in my memory. And like I said, I've been here for about 12 years, so unless I I missed missed something there. But I want to give a brief contextual background to set the stage and frame our minds as we read the scripture. So what we're going to hit on first is uh, the date of writing and the author. So it's unclear who wrote the book of Job. Talmudic tradition suggests that it was Moses, but some scholars argue that Solomon may have been the one to write the book. Is it, it bears similarity in content to uh, some of the other wisdom books, and we'll discuss what that is here in a second that Solomon wrote, such as Ecclesiastes. And even still, though, some, some scholars argue um, that the book of Job was actually written prior to the book of Genesis. And so sometimes when we're reading the Bible, right, we're like, oh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, it all happened in this order. But in, in the case of Job, uh, it's grouped with the wisdom literature books, but it's understood by many that it might actually be the oldest book in the Bible. However, the events that take place in Job actually occur during what uh, we would call the patriarchal era. And so that is really the time between Genesis 12 and Genesis 50, the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we can see this supported through various details in the book. Uh, For instance, how we will see Job's wealth is categorized by the number of oxen and sheep and his livestock. We also see that... uh, In chapter 42, we see that his lifespan is roughly 200 years, which fits within the patriarchal period. So if we look back at the beginning of Genesis to Adam, right? Adam lived about 930 years. His son Seth, about 912. And as you move down the lineage, eventually you get to Noah. And Noah was 950 years old when he passed. But but post the Noahic flood... People started living less and less years until you get down to Abraham, who lived about 175 years, and his son Isaac, about 180, and Jacob, his son, about 147. So you can see if Job's lifespan is about 200 years, we can confidently place him at this point in history. 
Now we have this book in the, in the middle of the Old Testament that is set in the time of Genesis, unlike the books preceding it. And Job is the first of what is considered, as I had alluded to earlier, wisdom literature. And really a good way to define what wisdom literature is, is that it deals with the way the world works, right? It can deal with big philosophical problems and the smaller things that uh, may be addressed with what we would call common sense, right? Like ways to live. If you, uh, a lot of people will read Proverbs or maybe take a proverb out and, you know, put it on your wall, right? And it's like some beautiful instruction, right, by itself. And so it's instructions on ways to live. It's wisdom. And modern philosophical writings might be considered to be almost in the same vein as this ancient wisdom literature. Other books in the Bible that might be categorized as such would be Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. So understanding that Job is a book of wisdom helps to frame our mindset as we dive into Job's story. So let us go ahead and do just that. The book of Job contains three primary sections. The dilemma, the debates, and the deliverance. The dilemma in chapters 1 and 2 really introduce us to the, the title character. We learn of his life, his possessions, his family structure, and his love for the Lord. And simultaneously, we are shown the, the curtain of the heavenly realm is pulled back, and we're able to see things that are occurring in heaven between God and Satan. And then following the dilemma, following the introduction of the problem, we're introduced to the debates. And what the debates are is it's a series of discussions between Job and his three friends. And there's three rounds of discussions here, and they revolve around Job's suffering. In their discussions, Job and his friends, they go back and forth, right? And they try to seek to answer the question of why Job is suffering. And finally, we come to the deliverance in chapters 38 through 42. And so following the debates between Job and his friends, God finally shows up and he answers Job and he delivers Job from his suffering. And the focus of today's discussion, right, the end all, uh, be all of what we're gonna be talking about is those verses that Bill had read this morning in Job chapter 42. And so now that we understand the outline, right, let's, let's dive in to the dilemma. I tried to give a brief synopsis of what's going on uh, I'm, so for those of you that don't know, I have a background in the Air Force, and the Air Force, if, and if anybody else has served in the Air Force or uh, any military, it's you, you tell them what you're going to tell them, you tell them, you tell them, and then you tell them what you told them. I don't know if anybody has heard that saying, but that's pretty much the way, yeah, yeah, right? That's the military motto, right? That's how you brief people. And so that's what I've done, right? I've explained what we're going to, what I'm going to be telling you. And so let us dive in now into Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It says this, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And, th and when the days of the feast had run their course, 
Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And so this this introduction passage about who Job is, there's a couple of points I want to make. The first is that we see that Job was a rich and great man. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say he was the greatest of all the men in the East. And when I use this term rich and great, this is more so referring to his materialistic possessions. However, the following point is that Job was a man after God's heart. So not only was he great in terms of materialistic possession, but he was also great in terms of his love for the Lord. As we see here, Job would go in and he would offer offerings every day to the number of his children because why? It may be that my children have sinned. How many of us here would wake up every morning and provide offerings for our children? How many of us here pray daily for our children or find that to even be a struggle? Oftentimes we'll go to the Lord in prayer and we'll present our own problems or maybe we'll present our children as one of our own problems, but are we really praying for our children? We see that Job is continuously providing offerings to God as the family priest. Now, I want to be clear here. Um, based on the time that this was set, this was before the Levitical priesthood had been put into, had been instantiated by God. And so he was the one, Job was responsible for, for providing those offerings as the father of the household. However, I think that it is crucial to understand that men, as the leaders of your household, you should be the family priest. Men, do you serve as your family priest? Do you come before the Lord daily interceding for your children? This is not, I want to I caveat this, this is not the primary theme of the book. However, I think these verses do a great job of outlining and articulating what it means to be a great man of God or some of the qualities that God finds great and righteous in men. And so Job was the family priest. And so really, we have set the stage now for understanding who, who, who Job was. And following this introduction, the author of Job takes us to the heavenly places where we see Satan comes before the angels and the Lord himself. And Satan wants to test Job. You see, the only reason Satan argues that Job loves you, God, is because he has all this stuff. You've given him such an easy life. It's so easy to love you, God, when you just put a hedge of protection around Job. And so he calls God out in that way. And when we really think about the Bible in its entirety, every time we're introduced to Satan, right, Whenever he's on the scene, he tries to do something like this. He tries to twist the truth. In uh, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, he tries to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. And when he offers Christ food in the wilderness, he tries to tempt Christ and Matthew. And, And the point here is that Satan wants to undermine our relationship with God. That is who Satan is. His primary goal in his being, is to tear apart, pull us away from our heavenly Father. And he does that through lies, 
manipulation, and temptation. You see, the easiest way to undermine Job's relationship with God from the outside perspective, right? Because what do we know about Satan? Satan is not all-knowing, right? He doesn't understand the depth of Job's faith the way that God does. And so the easiest way he sees to undermine Job's relationship with God is to take away all that he has. Now, as I said before, when life is good, it's easy to follow God. And, And I would argue one of the difficulties in being an American Christian is that we don't necessarily all experience struggle and pain the way that we might read about in Scripture. I would argue that for most people, life is pretty good most of the time in America. And I think most would agree with me on that. When you look at countries where there's no running water, when you look at countries where people are dying because they're Christians, and we, as as Americans or in, in, in the modern world, right, in first world countries, sometimes I think we come to God and we say, you know, God, if only I had X, my life would be better. Or perhaps we might even turn to God and say, if only God gave me X, my life would be better. Now, I, I want to make this clear. I'm not saying that desires for materialistic things is inherently evil. I'm not calling Uh, for people to just give up everything they have and just go walk the streets in rags, right? That is not what, what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is when the receipt of those materialistic things impact our relationship with God, our relationship with God should come into question. Just like with Job, Satan believes that if all these things that make Job's life great are taken from him, he will no longer serve God. So what does God do in response? God allows Satan to afflict Job. He grants Satan access to move on Job as his enemy, but tells Satan that he cannot physically hurt Job. Don't touch him. You can do anything you want, but don't touch him. So what does Satan do? He destroys all of Job's crops. He kills his livestock. He kills his servants. And who else does he kill? All of his children. Now, I am a, I'm married for, I've been married to my beautiful wife, Lily, for two years. And I am now a father-to-be. And just the thought of my unborn child dying, I can't fathom losing 10 children. And I know uh, there are some of you here this morning that can fathom it. And how we respond to that suffering can be very difficult. And, and what I want to do here is I want to encourage you with Job's response to this suffering. In Job chapter 1, verse 22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan doesn't like this. Satan doesn't like strong faith, a faith that is unshakable in, in the midst of adversarial and, and, and trials and, and enduring through this. He doesn't like that because what does that really do? It brings glory to the heavenly father. And, he, and so, so what does Satan do? He goes back to God and he says, you know what, God? He says this in chapter two, verse four. He says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. So he's basically saying there, you know what, God? You know, I would give everything up 
if, as long as I could keep my life, right? As long as I was in good health. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So now Satan has the green light to go and afflict Job physically. And so what does he do? He covers him in sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head, to the point that Job has to go and he takes broken pieces of pottery and he is peeling the sores off of his body. It gets so bad that his own wife tells him to curse God and die. If only you would just blaspheme God and curse him, God would strike you down there and your suffering would end. And what does Job do? In all this, the Bible says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So we have Job, completely distraught. And we're introduced now to his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, E, B, and Z, because sometimes it's hard to say Bible names, right? Job's sores are so bad, he is so grotesque, he is so afflicted that upon entering into his presence from a distance, his friends can't even recognize him. And they're dismayed and they sit with their friend Job for seven days and seven nights. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a good friend. Now, the reason I mention that is because sometimes people pull, pull topics out of out of books in the Bible that are not inherently the purpose of the writing. And, and sometimes I think people go to the book of Job and they pull out this big idea, be careful who your friends are, because we'll see later on that Job's friends actually give really bad advice. But we sometimes skip over the fact that Job's friends sat with him in silence for seven days. I would say that that's a good-meaning friend, just bad, bad advice giver, right? But I think we all probably have a friend like that. We all have a friend that's like, man, I love them, but they say some bad stuff, right? I would never listen to them, but I love going and shooting some hoops, right? And so I want to be careful here and not, not say that uh, it, the purpose, right? right? I agree with the sentiment that we should be careful who our friends are. But I think the purpose of this introduction of these friends and their placement in the story is that the ensuing discussions are not to be a discourse on the power of friendship, but rather to verbalize the thoughts that are going through our heads when we are in the midst of suffering. If we just were introduced to Job and were like, this happened, but he was good, that's one thing, right? Like, oh, Satan afflicted him, but he, he remained faithful, that's one thing. But we are able to see the discussions between him and his friends and what's going on in their heads, and honestly, I think that's even more beautiful because we're able to relate even deeper to Job. Because these types of thoughts that we're about to read in the discussions and the debates are exactly the same type of thoughts that we have when we endure suffering. And so now we enter the debates. Just as the book can be broken into the three sections I previously described, the debates can, the debates can really be thought of as three separate cycles of arguments followed by this long-winded speech from another person that just pops up, Elihu. And so what happens, right? After seven days and seven nights, 
Job begins to speak, and he begins by lamenting over his own childbirth. He ponders why it was that he was even born. He remarks in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, he says this, Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. You see, Job is in such dismay that he wishes he was never even born. Friends, have you ever been so low to question your birth? Perhaps you have even thought of taking your own life. Perhaps you've seen yourself in Job at this very moment, wondering why, it is, why is it that a loving God would allow the trials that you have, have to deal with? How can a loving God let this happen to me? I love him And yet I have to endure this. And so rather than maybe questioning God, we look look to ourselves and we say, I just wish I was never even born. And so that's the point here that Job questions his own birth. Job questions his own birth. And, excuse me, one of the, when we begin to go down this rabbit trail, right, I think this really, uh, asks a bigger question. There's a bigger question at play here. And that big question is this. Why do the innocent suffer? Why do the innocent suffer? Job was righteous and he is suffering. Now in response to Job's cries, his friends take a stab at attempting to answer this very question. In our limited worldview, right, It would make sense that God blesses the just and the righteous, and he curses the wicked. The wicked should not prosper. Now, I'm a big movie buff, okay? For those of you that don't know me, me, 95% of the things that I say in conversation are probably a movie quote. And I'm also a big closet comic book nerd. So I have an extensive comic book collection, which I am proud of internally, but externally I say I'm not proud of it, but I love it. And it's funny that I've, I've realized this about myself. When I watch a movie, you can tell exactly how much I'll enjoy the movie by how much the good guy overcomes and how much the bad guy suffers. And I, I say that. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but I will. I'll be honest, right? Sometimes I'll even go as far as to say, and I said this actually the other day to my wife. I'll look, I look over her, and we're watching a TV show. I'm like, man, I can't wait till they kill that guy off. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Like they, they do something like insane. You're like, man, I can't wait for the writers to just take that guy out, right? That is our, there's a satisfaction in, the logic, in our logical interpretation of justice. When someone gets theirs, right? We enjoy justice on our own terms and when it, it's beneficial to us. However, in God's greater sense of justice, we see that he does not always work in the ways that we understand to be fair, in fact, so much so that non-believers use the suffering of the innocent as a debating point to argue against the legitimacy of God. Ultimately, it boils down to one question, right? Why do the innocent suffer? Why do the just suffer? Or better yet, why does a good God allow the innocent to suffer? The concept of justice 
This concept of justice is mirrored through the debates between Job and his friends because continuously we will see his friends affirm their view of God's justice by asking God or by asking Job, excuse me, what it is that Job has done to receive this punishment from God. And they look at him and they say, dude, if you would just, if you would just uh, turn away from whatever it is you did, God will bless you again and, and you'll have blessings in your later days. We see in chapter five, verses eight through 11, this, as for me, this is Eliphaz speaking, E, right? As for me, I would seek God and to God would I commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. So we see here, Eliphaz pointing out, like, if it was me, I would just go to God and not be honest. He's implying here that Job has done something to deserve this. And then in, the, in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, Bildad, B, says this, How long will you say these things? In the words of your mouth be a great wind. He's saying this to Job. How uh, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, perhaps it was your children, Job. Maybe your, maybe your children did something bad. He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. And though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. Friends, this is a common discussion between, I would even say some believers or those who claim to be believers will say this. Well, if you just are good, good things will happen. No. The answer to that is no. That is not how the world works. That is not how God works. Just because you are good does not mean good things happen to you. And so Eliphaz and Bildad and their friend Zophar, they all hold this idea that, oh, of course, Job is the problem. Because a just God blesses the righteous. And if you just make yourself right with God, you'll find peace and your latter, latter days and future days will be great. But Job claims his innocence. Now, Job, as if you read this in greater detail, you'll see he wrestles back and forth with this idea of his innocence and the greatness of God. Because he recognizes, okay, God is almighty, he's great, but I'm innocent. And I wanna note here that Job is never claiming to be perfect he is only claiming to be innocent in, re, in uh, relation to the suffering that he is enduring. He's not claiming to be perfect. He's claiming that I don't deserve this, right? And so we see that later on as he continues down this rabbit, rabbit trail, right? He begins to do this. He, Job questions God's fairness because he knows he was innocent. In chapter nine, verses 20 through 24, it says this, though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself, I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? So what Job is saying here is, if God is in control, he is the one giving the allowing the wicked to prosper. Job is wrestling with God's omnipotence and omniscience and his love and his mercy. He can't 
he can't uh, correlate those two things. He can't, he can't allow those things to make sense. If God is this, then he cannot be this. In, uh, in chapter 13, verses 15 through 19, Job kind of comes to this conclusion. He says, though he slay me, though God, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Keep listening to my words, and my, let my declaration be in your ears. Behold, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. Who is there who will contend with me? For then I would be silent and die. And so here, Job is finally coming to that conclusion that, you know what? I'm innocent, but God is in, in charge. Job here uses, uh, and, and in the previous uh, passage we read in, in chapter 9, Job uses kind of legal terminolo terminology. He uses terms like judges, innocence. In uh, chapter 9, verse 32, he, he talks about having a trial. In this passage here in chapter 13, he talks about his case and again demands innocence. And so two more rounds of debate follow this, right? between the friends, with each one, each, each person drawing closer to their original idea, which, I mean, if anybody here has ever argued with their friends, typically you just kind of keep going back and forth, and then you're getting closer and closer, or farther and farther apart, really, right? That's typically how our arguments go. And so finally, we, we find ourselves in Job chapter 31, where most of your Bibles probably have something like this as the heading, Job's final appeal. Again, this legal terminology. I would put it in today's terms as Job's calling God out. You see, Job wants his day in court with God. In the whole chapter, okay, of, of chapter 31, it's comprised of if-then statements. During this time in history, in a situation where an individual was innocent, they would attest to it using what we consider an exculpatory oath or an oath of the innocent, right? Uh, between themselves, they would make this oath between themselves and a king or a deity. And basically, this was a common courtroom procedure. The defendant would claim, if I have done this, let you do this to me, right? If I have done something wrong, then this should be the punishment. For example, in chapter 31, verse 24, it says this, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. So he's saying, if I've done all this, then punish me. You see, Job wants God in the courtroom, but he doesn't want God in the courtroom as his judge. He wants God in the courtroom as the defendant, or rather the plaintiff, right? Because Job is defending his innocence here. He's like, God, you have done this to me. I'm going to defend my innocence, and now you need to defend your actions. Job wants his day in court with God. And so, really, it's kind of interesting, right, this idea that if God is sovereign over all things, 
then in Job's definition of justice, God can't be just. And if God is just, then he can't be sovereign. And that, that statement there, to boil it down to like today's discussion, uh, or to like a common discussion, would be somebody looking at you and saying, well, if God was in control of everything, he wouldn't let babies die in Africa. Or we can say, well, God isn't actually in control of everything. He is just, and if he, but if he was in control of everything, he would prevent babies from dying in Africa. You see, in our definition of justice, from our point of view, we wrestle with the idea of God's sovereignty and his justice. Because if our definition of justice is true, then God can't be sovereign. Now, after the claim of innocence from Job, we are introduced to a new person, Elihu, which I had, I had briefly mentioned earlier. And in chapters 32 through 37, he, he makes a speech. And so I suffice it to say for the sake of time that Elihu is angry with Job and reiterates the characteristics of God, his greatness, his majesty. And he condemns Job for his insolence against the almighty creator. And this leads us into chapter 38, which we described as the deliverance of Job. And this is the point here. God gives Job his trial. Job called God out, and now God's responding. And let me just say, friends, if it was me, because I've been in situations, right, where I'm like, you know what, God, right? Some, some, of, you might, some of you might have been there. I would expect most of you. Where you have a situation, you're like, you know what, God, and now God's responding. Like, we don't, we don't experience that. We have this kind of, like, shield where we'll be like, waving our fingers at God, and God doesn't actually speak back to us. But guess what, Job? Here comes a whirlwind, and God's speaking through it. That's a little scary. And what do we see here in Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 7? Just a small piece of the Lord's answer to Job. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determines its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who do you think you are to question the Almighty God? Where were you when the stars were placed in the sky? And God continues this this. Uh, this, I don't want to say arguing, but this affirmation of his might, right? Putting Job in his place. He continues this for three straight chapters. He affirms his might, his power, his wisdom, his justice. He calls out Job to stand before him and contend with the Almighty. And Job responds with initial silence. Job recognizes that God is in control and he responds with initial silence. You see, halfway through God, uh, react, or God's response to Job, he asks Job to respond and Job's like, oh, I'm gonna be quiet. Now, I don't know about you, but I, so <laughs> growing up, my mom had this great saying. And now that I'm gonna be a future father, I, I might have to continue the saying. But many of you might've heard of it. I brought you into this world, but I can take you out. Thank you. Very good. We all, grew, we all grew up the same, I guess. 
I brought you in this world, I can take you out. I remember as a child being angry with my parents, and I learned very young that arguing with my parents was never the right way to go. So I might like start off, be like tough, you know, and then you go into your room, right, and you punch the pillow because you're angry. But like when you're sitting there, you got like tears running down your face, you're like, I'm not going to say anything, right? And so like this idea of like just complete silence when your parents are doling out their justice, how much more should we be silent before the almighty God? Now, there's, there's a crucial aspect to this story that might get overlooked at this point. As the readers, we are made aware of why Job is enduring these trials. So we can logically articulate that, well, Job, God, and Satan were having a discussion, and God wanted to prove a point. However, Job is never made aware of the heavenly events that took place. Job is never given an opportunity, an answer, as to the meaning behind his suffering. He says, God, I'm innocent. Why did you do this? And God's response is, who do you think you are? I am that I am, right? He questions God and is reminded instead of who he is in relation to God. The next point would be Job never knows why he suffered. Job questions God and is reminded of who he is in relation to God. Instead, Job, so after the first initial silence, like, oh no, right? Job finally gives an answer after God asks for it a second time. And it says in chapter 42, then Job answered the Lord and said this, chapter 42, verses 2 through 6, the passage we read this morning. I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." How arrogant must we be to question the perfection of the almighty creator? How prideful must we be to argue with the heavenly judge? In Romans chapter 11, open there right now, Paul puts it like this, verse 35 or excuse me, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, friends, actually in that passage right there, uh, Paul quoted God's response to Job. Verse 35, um, if, that, if you have your Bibles open, that is actually a quote directly from Job in God's response to Job. This leads us to our big idea today. God is sovereign. God is just. It's not one or the other. He's both perfectly 
and holy both. So it's interesting, right? We come to Job and we ask the question, why do the innocent suffer? And instead, we are being left with a reminder of God's sovereignty. You see, God is in control of all things and God is perfectly just. You don't get to call out God because he's in charge. I think one of the problems with, the, with generations today um, is this overwhelming sense of individual importance. The rise of social media has fed the beast of self-centeredness for many of us, intoxicating us with the idea that we are the center of the universe. And this self-centeredness then feeds our ego and pride. And so many of us are actually turning from the Lord and distorting his truth because we are putting ourselves as God. God, you're not doing a good enough job running the universe. I think, I think I'm the center now. And the same claims of Job and his friends are used by those in the church today to justify heresy. Surely, if you have more faith, you'd be blessed with earthly riches. I'm sure some of you have heard that. I'm not going to name any pastors that preach that, Joel Osteen, but (laughs) that is not true. That is not true. Now, the book of Job ends with the description of increased earthly blessings for Job. And some, of, some use this to argue that point, right? That if you just hold fast during the, and endure the, the, the hardship, you'll be blessed. Now, God blesses us daily with the breath that he gives us in our lungs. And, and to those who hold this view that somehow enduring Suffering leads to some sort of materialistic possession or a right, an, like an obligation. God somehow has an obligation to give us something. I just ask them this. Okay, how, how did that work out for all the apostles who died violent deaths, most in squalor, right? Like, that doesn't make any sense. But it makes sense when we want stuff and we twist the words of God to allow us to gain James references Job in chapter 5 in the book of James. We see Job used as an example of patience and suffering when James writes this, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Note, this patience is not for materialistic gain. It's for what? The Lord's coming. See how the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the soil, how patient he is for the fall and spring rains. You too, be patient and strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Do not complain about one another, brothers, so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience and affliction, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. See how blessed we consider those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You see, at the end, Job gets a bunch of stuff back, right? He gets donkeys and camels. But what we see in James is that our enduring suffering is not so that we would receive more earthly earthly riches, right? But James is reminding the brothers here that the Lord will be faithful to his people, and it is for us as believers to be patient in suffering with the knowledge of the glory that is to come and awaits us in heaven, because that glory is the true prize, not a bunch of camels or donkeys, but eternity in heaven with the Father. 
I think sometimes we, we get this idea, and I kind of hit on this, that God owes us something. God, God doesn't owe us anything. He gives us because he loves us, right? He gives things to us because of his love for us. But God doesn't owe anyone anything. It's funny. I think the, the, the problem a lot of Christians have is that they do not have a right understanding of the person of God. And this plays out in our understanding of even our salvation. Now, I like to ask a question to the students when I'm teaching. And I ask this. I say, did God save you from sin? Or, excuse me, did, did Christ's death save you from sin? And a lot of times kids are like, yeah, Jesus died to save me from my sins. And I say, no. Jesus died to save you from the wrath of a perfect almighty God. Your sin, because of your sin, you deserve that. But Christ's death covers you and takes that wrath Because why? Because God is just and God is sovereign. He is in control and he is just. Question I want to leave in closing here. Who do you think you are? Are you a child of God patiently awaiting his return? Enduring the trials of this earthly life? looking forward to the day of the Lord's coming? Or are you somebody that sits here this morning and you say, you know what, God owed me. That's why Jesus came. God owed me because I'm so important. Friends, you're not that important. (laughs) I love you all, right? Maybe I, I, that was a little too blunt, but I love you all, but you're not that important. Who's important? The Lord above. He is of most importance, and we must be in right understanding and relationship with him. And with that, I want to leave on a psalm about God's sovereignty. Psalm 135, verse 1 reads this. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise him, you servants of the Lord. You who minister in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our Lord, do what? Praise the Lord, for the Lord is Good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the end of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Praise the Lord. In all things, he is sovereign, he is just, and all things belong to him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just come before you today humbly, prostrate, Lord, that, that we have an opportunity to even speak to the almighty creator, the one who knit together the universe. Lord, I pray that as we go out in our lives and we ponder our own salvation and and existence, Lord, that we would do so in the light of knowing who you are, your power, your majesty, your justice, and your love, Father. I pray that 
we would strive to live lives upright and holy by the power of the Spirit, Lord, that you that indwells in us, that you give us an opportunity to just seek after you. And Lord, we thank you for your son, Christ, who came and he died, not, not just to save us from sin, Lord, but to save us from your wrath, which is the penalty of our sin, Father. We thank you and we love you. In all, you, in all these things we pray in your name, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.